Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly opinionated and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and I'm back. I know, probably earlier than you guys expected, but man, the world is on fire, and so I had to come in and do a, a, a recording and get the ball rolling again. This is actually just a little bit of a soft intro because this isn't our normal uh, podcast that I would normally be doing that is going to share the news of the past week because something happened in our family and with my dad as a medical doctor that I wanted to share with all of you as my listeners. And I know there may be some crossover between my podcast and his podcast, More Than Medicine, which by the way, if you're not listening to that podcast, you should go subscribe to that in the uh, iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. But Dad went before a medical affairs uh, committee with the Senate about uh, just a couple weeks ago now, and uh, about a week and a half, and he went to testify on behalf of doctors and those in the medical field regarding the usage of ivermectin to treat patients with COVID-19. And so I wanted to share with all of you his testimony, and then we're going to do a little bit of an interview afterward. And so here's his testimony and the words that he said about 12 minutes to the Senate. And then we're going to come back and we're going to have a little bit of an interview with my dad regarding that. I'm from the upstate from Spartanburg. I practiced family medicine for 40 years, 38 years as an independent physician and two years working for Spartanburg Regional Medical Center. I attended Clemson University, Medical University in Charleston, three years as a family medicine resident in Spartanburg, one year as a surgery resident there also. I'm here to advocate for doctors in the state of South Carolina. I think it's a little bit odd that I have to advocate for physicians. That's what I'm here to do. In the 1840s in Vienna, there was a physician named Ignaz Simmelweis who worked at a teaching hospital the alleged mine, Rackenhaus. He was a young obstetrician from Hungary. His responsibility was to watch out and take care of postpartum female patients. The protocol in that day was for the attending physicians to perform autopsies on the patients who had died the previous night. Then they would take their students in tow, go to the postpartum ward, and examine all of the postpartum females on Dr. Simmelweis' ward. He noticed that the female patients who were not examined by the attending physicians did not acquire corporal fever, childbed fever. Being an astute and observant young physician, he decided to institute a policy whereby the attending physicians would wash their hands before examining his patients. He deduced that there must be something that was being transmitted from the morgue to his patients. The older physicians held him up to scorn and ridicule and did not want to wash their hands, but it was his ward. He prevailed. They had to wash their hands, and the 40% mortality on his ward plummeted. He then perceived that there was something being transmitted from patient to patient because the infections continued, and he instituted a policy of washing hands in between patients. 
The older physicians violently objected, went to the hospital administrators, protesting this young physician's policy, and they prevailed. The hand washing was discontinued. Mortality went back to 40%. Young Dr. Semmelweis resigned in humiliation. He went to Czechoslovakia to a hospital in Krakow, instituted the same policy, obtained the same results. The same ridicule and scorn was heaped upon him by older physicians, and the same result. He ended up resigning. He died in an insane asylum because he could not escape the vision of his patients dying needlessly from infections. Less than 50 years later, hand-washing in between patients became the standard of care. The truth is often ridiculed and scorned. It's then violently opposed, and then it becomes self-evident. And in medicine, it becomes the standard of care. Medicine advances due to observations of individual physicians and innovations of astute physicians who are willing to practice medicine and willing to try new techniques or new medications or new modalities, willing sometimes to go against the established order or tradition or existing protocols, often enduring ridicule, scorn, or ostracism. However, the truth, like the tar baby, is a sticky thing, and it's persistent. More than that, suppressing truth is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Uh, It's exhausting and nearly impossible. It eventually comes to the surface. The truth, when first prevented, is almost always ridiculed. It's then violently opposed, but then it eventually becomes self-evident. And like I said, in the medical world, it then becomes the standard of care. Those physicians who want to be innovative and want to provide quality care for their patients by prescribing a safe and effective medication, such as the one we've discussed today, which is ivermectin, are not only being ridiculed, but are being violently opposed. And many of them are being threatened with the loss of their livelihood. Many who would like to be here today feel so threatened they are fearful to make an appearance. These things should not be in America, the home of the free, the land of the brave. Here's my concern. Physicians in South Carolina are being strong-armed by hospital system employers, insisting that they adhere to protocols for the treatment of COVID and not allowing them to innovate or try new medications. COVID has only been an issue for two years. Every treatment is new and untested. We should be trying all manner of medications, even repurposing old medications like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, as are our medical peers all around the world. Senator Hutto has left us, but I want him to understand that I am one of those doctors that he wants to hear from who has been instructed by his employer to not prescribe ivermectin. Two weeks ago, I was informed by the hospital system at Spartanburg Regional that I was one of the highest prescribers of ivermectin in the hospital system and that I should cease 
and desist. There was a veiled threat that if I continued to prescribe ivermectin, that my employment there would end. There was nothing put in writing, but that message came to me through my office administrator. I want you to understand that the physician-patient relationship is a sacred relationship to me, and that when there is informed consent and patients understand the risk and benefit of a proposed prescription or medical treatment regimen, that I believe that hospital entities, insurance companies, or federal entities should not interfere in that doctor-patient relationship. I am a free American, and I'm not going to be bullied or intimidated by hospitals or insurance companies or federal entities. I have personal friends in the hospital, and I want you to understand that when I practice medicine for 40 years, that my patients become my friends. They become like family. And they're in the hospital seriously ill with COVID, on ventilators, and their families are begging intensive care doctors to try ivermectin to treat their patients. My patients are not illiterate. They're on the internet every day, and they understand the benefit of ivermectin for patients that are being treated around the world with that very same modality, only to hear these ICU doctors look at them and say, that's not a part of our protocol. And these patients are saying, but everything you're using is not helping. My husband, my wife is dying. What's the harm? Why will you not even try it? It's safe. It's effective. It's inexpensive. It's not going to hurt my husband or wife. It can only help. And their only response is, it's not part of our protocol. As to the effectiveness of ivermectin, I would only share with you what Dr. Pierre Corey shared with you, the example of Uttar Pradesh, also in Peru. Peru had an epidemic just like everyone else in the world. Their administration decided to distribute ivermectin nationwide, and their pandemic disappeared entirely almost to zero in Peru. A different administration came to power. They discontinued the ivermectin distribution and their epidemic returned to the same as all of their neighboring nations. The administration realized their mistake, began to distribute ivermectin nationwide, and their pandemic disappeared once again. The same thing happened in Mexico City. Their hospitals were at capacity. And within three months, their hospitals were down to 20 to 30 percent utilization, all because they were distributing ivermectin citywide in all of Mexico City, one of the largest cities in the world. I brought for you copies of these meta-analyses of uh, ivermectin use around the world, randomized control studies. You gentlemen and lady can look these over yourselves. And I would encourage you to do so. Senator Hutto asked, what would we like for you to do? Here's my suggestions. Number one, a magistrate once told me that no matter how thin you slice the piece of bread, there's always two sides to the story. You're going to have to do your own research. You're going to have to do your own investigation and come to your own conclusion. But be careful that you don't associate with the crowd that will have egg on its face when that beach ball of truth comes to the surface. 
and we find that ivermectin is safe and effective and it works well in treating our patients. And it becomes like hand washing the standard of care. I would ask you to advocate for the sanctity of the physician-patient relationship and the right of patients to practice medicine unimpeded by the bureaucracy. And just so you'll know, I have had pharmacists call and question my judgment when I prescribed ivermectin and refused to prescribe the medication, saying that their pharmacy did not approve of it. If I were king for a day, I would recommend that we prescribe ivermectin to all adults in the state of South Carolina, just like they did in Uttar Pradesh and in Peru and in Argentina and Mexico City. I think we would see COVID disappear in South Carolina and we could be the first in something in the United States rather than last. Remember, the next very ill patient in the ICU could be your spouse, your parent, or your child. And when everything else fails, you could be the one looking at the ICU intensivist and saying, well, doctor, everything else you've tried has not worked. Why will you not try ivermectin? And he'll look at you and just say, well, it's not on our protocol. Oh, so, dad, (laughs) what powerful words. I have heard that so many times in the last, I mean, my, my phone, my text messages, my phone calls, my emails, my Facebook, all, all of the things have been blowing up with folks who have watched that video. I mean, you even got censored off of YouTube. I mean, you know, you're important and that you're in the right <laughs> when YouTube You know censors. you have arrived when YouTube <laughs> censors you. I was so proud to hear that I had been censored by YouTube. I know. You were a among important people at that point. We, we had 20,000 views on YouTube and they took us down. Mm-hmm. And then some organization in South Carolina mm-hmm. harassed YouTube for half a day and they put us back up. They put you back up and I went and checked and they actually restored the view number, the count number. So you're now at almost 30,000 views in just a couple of days because that, uh, I forget, it was Monday that they took it down and then it was two days later. Now you've reached another 10,000 um, where it's just continuing to kind of go viral for us, so to speak, in our little corner of the world. And it's just been a phenomenal outreach, and your phone at your office has been exploding. I know my mom jokingly said that you're going to need your own secretary for this stuff because people are just so thankful that you were willing to stand up and look at these pharmaceutical giants in the face and willing to say what you said, which if you know is basically, what is it any of your business if I'm using if my patient and I decide together? during a pandemic where everything is experimental if we decide to use something that's safe and effective. And so well, I want well, let, me, well, let me say this before you go to your questions. I know mm-hmm. you have some questions you want to ask, but, but I want to say that I have had dozens and dozens of doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, and PAs calling me on the phone and thanking me for being willing to stand up and be an advocate for them and for the doctor-patient relationship. I've gotten letters uh, I mean, I got six letters in the mail just today. Uh, I got a notice that, that a, a, a nurse at a hospital here in the state put on a big screen 
this entire presentation that I made and that dozens and dozens of doctors and nurses stood and watched it and applauded in their hospital at the presentation that I made, advocating for them and their doctor-patient relationship. I've been getting phone calls from people out of state, around the United States, people I don't even know. And so I know that it touched a nerve. I know that it, it really connected with people who've been bullied and intimidated by their employers and interfering with the doctor-patient relationship. Now, get this. Two days after that, I saw a document that was called the Rome Declaration, and it was signed by 3,900 doctors and scientists from around the world, basically making the same statement that I was making before that Senate subcommittee, that Medical Affairs Senate subcommittee, stating that they wanted pharmaceutical companies, government entities, and big tech to stay out of the doctor-patient relationship. And they no longer wanted to be censored or intimidated by others interfering in their practice of medicine or their medical research. And it was a very strong statement. And, and our listening audience can look up the Rome Declaration signed uh, September the 14th, 2021. Powerful document. Hi, this is Bob of Bob Sloan Audio Productions. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast yourself? Do you have a desire to communicate an idea, opinion, or even a hobby or interest you'd like to share with the world? And do you have the communication skill and dedication? If so, let's talk. Send an email and a short description of your idea to bob at bobsloan.com. That's bob at b-o-b-s-l-o-n-e dot com. Now let's get back to the podcast. So, Dad, what is the main takeaway or one of the main takeaways that you would like our listeners to have and take from that speech that you just gave? Well, the thing I was trying to communicate to the senators, and I think it's the thing that so resounded with the doctors and nurses and PAs and nurse practitioners and the lay the people. And There's lay... thousands of lay people <laughs> yes. that have been responding to me. I mean, all me, all these people that they're not in the medical, but they're like, this makes sense. And they're, and they're like, I wish that man were my doctor. Or where does this man practice? Because he really cares about his patients. I mean, they're saying the same things too. Well, it's, it's when I told the senators that protocols and guidelines and standard of care is not a sacred cow. I want them to understand that I am a practitioner of the art and science of medicine and that I am not a protocol worshiper. And you see, protocols are a good thing, but they are not the final arbiter of what I say and do as a medical professional. Many hospitals and many physicians worship at the altar of protocols and standard of care guidelines faithfully obeying the dictates of some faraway medical association without ever considering the individual needs of patients. On the other hand, thinking and caring physicians consider the circumstances of their individual patients, and those circumstances include their finances, their level of education, their age, um, how many other drugs they may be taking, their transportation needs, 
their willingness to comply with a standard of care. You have to take all of those things into consideration before making decisions for that individual patient's care. And you sometimes deviate from the guidelines, from the standard of care in that individual patient's best interest. Now, do you remember that movie, The Pirates of the Caribbean? Of course I do. (laughs) Most of your listening audience, my listening audience will Mm -hmm. remember that movie. Now, if you remember throughout the movie, the pirates, um, they kept mentioning the pirate's code Mm -hmm. as if they could never deviate from the pirate's code. I know where this is going. But at one point in time, (laughs) Kira Knightley caught them deviating from the code for their ulterior motives. And she called them on it, and they all stood in a circle, shifting their feet and looking nervously at one another. And the old pirate looked at her, and he said, Well, lassie, the code is kind of like, you know, a guideline. You know what I mean? Well, and all the pirates kind of looked and nodded at one another, and they were like, yes, 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 he's right. It's just a guideline. Well, you see, the standard of care is like a guideline, (laughs) you know? And And doctors don't deviate from that for ulterior motives or for greed or some other reason. They do it. For, in the patient's best interest. And, and all doctors understand that, but there are government entities and hospitals that are putting pressure on individual doctors to adhere to a standard of care that's not in their patient's best interest. Hospital boards, sometimes even boards that are driven by physicians, should not intervene with that or interfere with that relationship. Now, let, let's let's go to another question here. How can highly educated, intelligent people be so opposed to a safe and effective treatment like ivermectin? And I think that's the question that a lot of folks have because they're thinking, okay, I'm not a medical professional, but it seems like this is such a, a safe and effective thing. Why is my why is my doctor opposing it? Or why won't this pharmacy fill it? Is there something that I don't know? And it creates all this doubt and confusion. That's right. And, you know, the medication is safe, it's effective, and it's, and it's inexpensive. What, what's the big deal? And as I said in my presentation, why should they give two hoots and a holler about why I'm prescribing ivermectin to my patient in a rural medical clinic in Gaffney, South Carolina? Mm-hmm. Why it, should the government care? You know, why should the insurance companies care what goes on between me and my patient if the patient has informed consent? Well, I'm going to be brutally honest here. The Bible talks about folks who reject the truth. And when people reject the truth, the Bible in 1 Thessalonians tells us that God himself sends a deluding influence in their life. And then Paul talked to Timothy about those folks that he should beware of who are deceiving and being deceived, deceived by the enemy of our soul. And then the Bible also talks about people who are spiritually lost, who are blind and darkened in their understanding. And then 
I would call that a spiritual double whammy because not only are they deceived and darkening their understanding by the enemy of their soul, but they are also deluded by God himself because they have rejected the truth. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Bible tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And I'm here to tell you that there are a whole host of people in our nation today who cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. And people in our listening audience scratch their heads and say, this is so obvious to me. Why can they not understand? And I'm here to tell you that we are fighting a spiritual battle. And we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And there are people that that you would think because of their intelligence and education that they would understand this, but they can't because they're darkened in their understanding. Now, I say this to my friends all the time. Evangelism is our only strategy and truth is our only weapon. There's no amount of logic or rationale or research that's ever going to change the mind of your liberal, spiritually dead, know-it-all brother-in-law. The only thing that's going to help him is when he is born again into the kingdom of God, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and the Spirit of God opens his eyes to discern spiritual truth. That's why evangelism is so fundamental to everything that we do. Now, I'm not advocating that we abandon Uh, The things that we do in the political arena or the education arena or all the other tactics that we should be involved with, but fundamentally, everything that we do is based on evangelism. I have to share the gospel with my lost neighbor, my lost medical colleague, or the lost legislator. They have to see the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from that, everything else we do is going to fail and fall apart. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com.